Welcome to the Unboxing Your Packaging podcast, where we pop packaging out of the box thanks to the shared experience of inspiring businesses and experts. I am Colleen Regou from Look for Loops. My passion is to optimize the use of resources and designing out waste. This show aims to help you redesign, reuse, and recover your packaging. How to create a lower impact future for shipping and delivering goods. In this episode, you will learn how Returnity ensures that a reusable package is the right operational and economic fit for brands and retailers. Yes, Returnity designs and manufactures reusable packaging. But, as Mike emphasized all through our conversation, the circular logistics system implemented for reuse is the overarching key to success. Mike is sharing about many challenges his customers are facing, such as how to build lean and efficient solutions, what parts should data play, how to reach a high rate of return cycles, how to embrace the current and coming packaging regulations, and who has to take responsibility of the end of life. Returnity is Brooklyn-based and serves companies like Walmart, Estee Lauder, New Balance, PayPal, Rent the Runway, and others. But they also work for smaller circular brands like Trado in West Canada, where I am based. I found it very interesting how Mike always cares for practicality, viability, and scalability. Let's start. Hi, Mike. Hello. Welcome to the Unboxing Your Packaging podcast, and thank you for being with us today. So you are the CEO of Returnity. Of course, we will dig into it during our conversation, but how would you describe what Returnity is about in one sentence or two, maybe? (laughs) Yes. Well, Returnity is really for brands and retailers that are under pressure to deliver their products in a more environmentally friendly way. We replace single-use bags and boxes with reusables that are operationally, economically, and environmentally superior to single-use. Okay, great. So that's a good summary. And I hear a lot of challenge behind that we will talk about for sure. So this is a little bit the why, but why this business particularly and how it started? Well, yes, it's, it has a bit of an unusual origin story. It was originally a reusable shopping bag business in Santa Cruz and happened to be making reusable shopping bags for a bunch of small companies, including at the time ThreadUp, which has since grown to be this huge publicly traded company focusing on textile reuse. But those were the very early days. And James Reinhardt, the ThreadUp CEO and co-founder, asked us if we could make him a reusable shipping bag. And we said, I don't know. Let's try. So (laughs) he asked. We went in the lab. We came up with some ideas. He liked it enough to invest. He was our first investor. And then five years ago, it was spun out to be a standalone business just to focus 
on shipping delivery packaging, which is when I came in. And so it sort of was a happy accident, but here we are with a mission and a focus that we're really excited about. Oh, that's interesting. So clients have chosen you <laughs> instead of you choosing kind of the client, even if it's like a win-win process, of course. But because you said that, maybe now when you work with partners and clients, do you have something specific of value in common that you are looking for to work with companies? Yeah, I mean, I think that origin is really still central to how we ultimately work in this industry, because at the time we were a product company, we had been tasked with coming up with a product, we came up with a product we like, but it's really, I think, important to understand that ThreadUp doesn't use that product today. And it's not because the bag didn't work. The bag worked great. It shipped easily. It protected the products. It was durable. It's because they didn't have a business model in the end that made reusables the right fit. And it, I'd like to think that we figured that out fast. We figured it out maybe a little bit slow, but ultimately the important thing was we did figure out what it takes to make reusable scalable and what are the building blocks that the companies need to have in their operations for it to be a good fit. And so a lot of our expertise now comes from helping customers First, understand where in their operations reuse is the right choice, and then making them the packaging. The packaging has to work and has to be great, and we're really proud of the packaging we make. But I think the key to our success has been first understanding system requirements for reuse, and then implementing reusables and doing it in that order, which is still, unfortunately, I think done most often the other way around, which is just coming up with reusable packaging and then trying to like shove it into some use model that isn't necessarily the right fit. Okay, I really like the fact that you insist on the system instead of products. It's like, okay, if you have a beautiful product that is not used in this more efficient way, it doesn't solve a problem. So I really like that. Maybe I can jump on something I was wondering. If you look at the secondary packaging market and more precisely the reusable bags market, some similar solution in the shipping and delivery market opt for standardized style and size, but you did something else. So why have you chosen custom designed reusable bags? Because we speak about system, but it's still kind of a product customized because of the use or because of the style or what is it about? It's because if I'm not mistaken, you have like mailer bags, boxes, Gunman bags and even Chrysalis's bag, but we, we will talk about this later because I'm curious about this one as well. So how does it work? Are you, I will say, in the edge of system and products? And how much would you say that customized products in a system challenge the reusability of bags? And on the other hand, it helps their reusability. What is the balance to find here? Yeah, I think that it's the instinct for everybody in the, in the industry to go towards standardized. It seems like um, a smart approach. And I, you know, I think at first glance, understandably so, it's always going to be more efficient to make a lot of one product than less of many products. And in theory, you can align logistics and infrastructure around a specific design 
And obviously there's use cases where that's worked very well, whether it's pallets or shipping containers, ocean shipping containers and so forth. But last mile packaging, you know, is serving a model that's extremely expensive, right? Now you're talking about moving small packages where every ounce and every inch is money. And so retailers for a reason insist on packaging that is the right size, shape, content protections for their goods for the last mile of delivery, because anything that is more than that is just cost. But ultimately it presupposes a, a consumer behavior that just does not exist in the real world, which is that people will return packaging. And you know the sad reality is that they don't at, at the level that is necessary for reuse in a traditional shipping and delivery model. And so what we mean by that is if I'm shipping you something in a reasonable bag or box and I ask you to send it back so it can be used again, you know, the experience of I think a lot of companies in this space is maybe they'll get it back as much as 75% of the time. Nobody claims they do better than that. And 75% seems like a really high number, but in the context of reuse, it's actually terrible because what it means is it's only being used four times. Reasonable packaging is more expensive than single use. It has to be constructed to be durable. And then because it's constructed to be durable, it's using more resources. It's more environmentally damaging until it's used enough to justify putting more materials into it. These things shouldn't be that complicated in the industry to understand, but people are still making a lot of mistakes with this. So um, you, building a reasonable bag or box that's only used four times, you're actually making the you know net harm to the planet. And so... And even though getting it back 75% of the time seems like a real exciting win from a sustainability standpoint, because how often can you get 75% of people to do anything pro-environment? In the reuse community, we need to understand that it needs to be 90 to 95%, because that means you're getting anywhere from 10 to 20 reuse cycles out of it. And now you're able to start to justify putting more materials and more cost into those packages. So the reason why ultimately to come back to the core question, the reason why we do it specific to each customer is because it has to be specific to each customer. And I would challenge anybody to give me an example of a standardized reuse package that is working for shipping and delivery today. And there are a dozen or more startups who have tried it and it doesn't work. And it's not because their packaging doesn't work. It's because the model that it's serving doesn't work. And so we have learned, we have to be specific. We have to understand clients' exact needs. We have to understand how the packaging is being used by every part of their stakeholder group. We have to make sure it's being returned at a high enough level. And when you do all those things together, you make programs that really succeed. But so making it easy up front and making it standardized might be a nice way to start, but it doesn't scale and it doesn't, it doesn't act ultimately uh, succeed. And that's interesting because indeed it's like kind of counterintuitive, you know, when you say it has to scale and so standardized, you have this picture of, okay, it can be easier to scale and actually your experience is completely different. So how do you manage to reach the best return rates bottom line with your clients? How do you partner with them? Do you track data or do you make specific incentives or what is the magic behind that? Make it happen. Well, I think that it starts by being humble in the sense that the instinct of retailers, of consumers, of all stakeholder groups is to try and address the hardest problems today as it relates to waste and, and packaging. And that is a natural instinct. So, you know, what I mean by that is 
we have all this e-commerce growth. People are drowning in cardboard boxes. They're fed up with it. They're frustrated. And so it's natural that people say, that's what we should switch from. You know, let's get, we got to get away from that. Let's do reuse. But that is a profoundly linear system that you're trying to move to circularity. Return rates might be 20% or 30% even for some of those e-commerce orders, but 70% or more of the time, the consumer is just disposing of the packaging locally, hopefully recycling, not, as we know, not necessarily all that often. And so you're taking a system that is, that is quite linear and you're trying to force it into circularity. And as I said before, you're not getting there. It's not, it's not getting there today. Where we come in is to say, what are the most circular parts of your operations today? Oftentimes, redollars don't even realize that they have aspects of their operations that are, that are quite circular. And so we're trying to find the easiest problems to solve. We want to build a foundation of success on reuse. We want to help the organizations get comfortable with it, learn from it, and expand off of success. And so finding easy problems is a much better way than finding hard problems to gain that momentum. Sometimes that's internal logistics. So how they're moving products between warehouses and stores or factories and warehouses. Sometimes it might be subscription programs they have. It might be as specific as for an e-commerce retailer identifying when somebody's ordering two sizes of the same product because they know they're doing a try-on, they're keeping one, hopefully, they're returning the other. It's already circular. The customer is already participating in circularity and not knowing it. It's that kind of detail that's necessary, I think, for retailers to build off of. Um, and it's possible and it's big. I mean, that's the other part of it. We're doing so much shipping and so much delivery that you can be specific and still have quite a bit of impact and you don't have to start, you know, start with the, the biggest problems first. Okay. So do you ask your client to kind of uh, define a specific context as well with like a number of use, you, a target, and you try to reach this target on a pilot project? Basically, if I am a company and I'm considering making the shift how will I succeed? What will be your advice? I have seen several things on your website as well, like with your 3P platform, um, process participation and package. I was wondering if we can a bit expand on that yeah. <laughs> to give a little bit more tips for companies if they want to switch, if they want to, to ensure the success of this reusable solution. Well, everything we do now is with, with pilots. You know, we, we've learned that it doesn't matter if it's an early stage startup or Walmart. It, nobody goes from zero to a million overnight and they shouldn't. It's new. It's new for every stakeholder. It's new for your employees. It's new for your shipping partners. It's new for your customers. And you want to make sure you're implementing it with success before you go all in. And so piloting is just a really important part of that process. And so... How we work with clients generally is have a first dialogue where we'll identify what the goals are, what, what are the opportunities we're trying to service. We'll come up with both packaging design prototypes and system outlines in parallel. Those things have to be integrated. And then we'll make maybe two <laughs> that gives them just a chance to look at it, feel what, you know, feel it, play with it. Then we'll probably make anywhere from 10 to 100 so that they can do actual real world shipping and delivery and get it in front of customers and get that kind of feedback, you could be three months in at that point already. You know, it, it's, so it takes a bit of time. And then at that point, generally we'll, we'll, we'll be able to do a review, identify what's worked, what's not. 
Maybe it's a second phase of the pilot. Maybe now you're going into a larger deployment, but it's actually, it's often six to 12 months to go through this whole cycle. And remember, this is reuse and reuse means multiple cycles. So it takes time. It gets to the customer, it gets back, it gets cleaned, it gets staged, it gets to the customer, it gets back. So it's going to take time. That's why retailers just have to be committed to a process. But through that process, they can learn how and why to trust in reuse, and again, to scale off of, of that foundation of success. That I think is sort of just fundamentally needs to be a part of, of any reuse program is that sort of pilot, learn and refine uh, approach. That's great. Thank you for sharing. And actually, it made me think about the, the first time I heard you, it was at a panel about reusable packaging organized by Packaging Europe. And you mentioned something I feel is so crucial for reusable success. It's not about how many times reusable can be reused. It is about how many times they are reused for real. It was almost a song, I will say. You you said like, do it back often enough and do it back cheap enough. And it was like, like a refrain, I felt. Okay, <laughs> people can really keep that in mind. It will help them to be on site and try it. And then I had a question, kind of a burning question. It's like, okay, do it back cheap enough. But so how do you mitigate the costs then? How and who is paying? The brands, the retailer or the end users? So that's was like, I really get very well the often enough and that we just mentioned and so on and i was like super curious about what is your business model behind to really make it cheap and approachable by anyone yeah i think uh, yeah, our viewpoint is that subsidies don't scale so it has to be unit economic, economic competitive with single-use packaging and single-use packaging is not as cheap as it used to be but it's still real cheap you know cardboard boxes are You know, we like to say they're dumb and they're cheap and they're easy, which is what makes it great. I mean, cardboard has succeeded for a reason. It's a really effective product in many, many ways, but it's a problematic product and it has to be addressed. And that's what we're doing uh, with reuse, but you have to lean in on why cardboard was successful. And, and ultimately, I think for companies that are thinking about reuse, whether it's in shipping or any other context, it's the cycle cost is got to be put up against the single-use product, the cost of the single-use products it's replacing. So in the context of shipping, if I'm spending $1.50 on a cardboard box that I'm using once, if it costs more than $1.50 to get the reusable package back and ready to be used again, then there's the subsidy. Because I'm, you know, if I'm paying UPS $3 to bring back an empty box to replace a $1.50 cardboard box, then somebody has to pay $1.50. And as you said, is it the retailer? Is it the consumer? How are you addressing that? And in our viewpoint, it doesn't work. You just, you know, nobody is scaling that kind of subsidy. Yes, there are some consumers who will pay that premium, but not very many. Retailers are not in a position where they can do that. So you have to find a way to get it below $1.50 in that example. And what does that mean? It needs a, either needs a free ride home. There's the example I used of the person ordering two pairs of shoes. The retailer was going to pay to get that box anyways, because they were going to cover the return shipping on a return. So in essence, it's a free return for that package. So that can work. The other option is to get what we would call a bulk ride home. So maybe the customer is dropping it off at a return center or the employees are emptying them in the store 
and they're all being shipped in one big batch. And so the per piece costs, you know, those are the realities of it is that you just have to get it back really cheap. Getting it back really cheap basically always means never shipping a single empty bag or box back to the retailer. It does not scale. It's way too expensive. Long story short, we just don't do those programs. We tell retailers, no, we don't think that's a viable model. We don't think there's evidence that it scales and, and we just don't do it because I don't, it's, it's a lot of time and energy and money from our vantage point too. And we don't succeed as a company until they place maybe the third order, right? Because then they're just running and it's just working. And if I can sit here today and know that program's not going to work because it's too expensive, even if the retailer is saying they want to try it, it's, it's just keeping me from doing things, the other things that I know can really scale. So that, that to me is the big condition ultimately is, can you get it back lower than the cost of the disposable it's replacing? If you can do that, now these programs can really fly because retailer is at least cost neutral or better and they're getting the sustainability benefits and they're getting all these customer benefits. And now it's an exciting way of, of switching to reuse. Okay, interesting. So my next question is a little bit related to that as well. In terms of business models, if I'm not mistaken, Returnity offers a full service integration plan, including cleaning, repair, and replace. So in short, is that right if I say that you are keeping the ownership of your reusable shipping boxes, bags, and envelope, or not? Or And if it's the case, is it for all of them? And specifically because of what you just said, what about the one one not coming back in the same place and all about this emptiness and so on? So can you explain that a little bit for us? Yes, we try and do as little as possible for two reasons. One is that it makes it our job simpler, right? I, I don't want to have to have a warehouse and employees and cleaning machines and all these other things because that's expensive. But we also think that that's at the, if it's required, then the whole approach to reuse needs, is going to be that much harder to execute. So another, you know, again, coming back to the economics argument, if I need the packaging to go from the retailer to the consumer, to me to be cleaned and then shipped back to the retailer again, I'm just adding time and money. And remember any extra day of logistics time means you have to make that many more packages. So you always have enough in circulation. So we think that putting us in the middle just is a complication and an expense that doesn't add much value. And if the system needs that much help in the middle, it's it's very suspect that it's ever going to work as a reuse system. So we design the packaging to not need to be cleaned often. I mean, obviously, if it's in a food setting, that's a different, you know, there's different considerations there. But from a shipping standpoint, the retailers are not cleaning those, you know, they're not washing those bags after every cycle and they don't need to be washed and the customers don't expect them to be washed. So they're able to just go up, you know, pack an order, ship it to the consumer, get returned, maybe get a wipe down or a spray like with a cleaning solvent just for safety, but, and then ship them out again. And that's been done now for millions or tens of millions of shipments in our packaging. It's, you know, it's just not a problem. It makes it more efficient and efficiency is how we're, you know, that's our killer app. That's how we're scaling and why so many shipments and deliveries are being done in our packaging is we're taking all the assumptions out. 
we're making it super lean and efficient because it's good business for us and it's good business for reuse. And when you need it to be more complicated is when it starts to fall apart. Okay, so that means it is the client who is responsible of the packaging, basically. You, you, you are not saying it back at all from time to time. <laughs> yeah, there's some in the grocery space, which has been a high growth area for us. Uh, we're helping to coordinate in-market servicing. So a percentage of the bags will need to be cleaned after every cycle, but we're not doing that in our own facilities. We're not opening laundry facilities across the country or, or in, in Europe. We're, we're partnering with local infrastructure and helping them to, to integrate that component. But no, there's no returnity warehouse. We don't have machines doing any of the work ourselves. We train the clients to be able to handle it on their own, and it just saves everybody time and money as a result. Okay, and I really like the fact that you are considering also local partnerships. I, I like that. So, because we spoke about different kind of bags and so on, and shipping, delivery, and so on, and I, I want our audience to have almost a picture in front of them. How do you brand your solution? I guess because of what you just explained, it's like more branded for the clients. There is not a big returnity logo on it or maybe yes on the on the other side or and how do you label each bag to make it convenient to reuse and at the same time to ensure it will come back to the client so what is what is on the bag basically well yeah the returnity name is not going to be on our packaging except for in very very rare circumstances consumers first of all a retailer it's just a bag or a box you know <laughs> I think so much expectation is put on these reusables, particularly in the shipping and delivery space, creating this brand experience. But it's just a bag or a box to get the product to your home. It doesn't need to be more than that. It probably shouldn't be more than that. And nobody knows or cares who Returnity is. And I don't want them to have to know or care who Returnity is. The star of the show is the brand. It should be. We don't add value by having Returnity's name on there. And the consumer wants to get to the thing that's inside. They don't want to focus on the thing that's outside and they shouldn't. So we're going to be behind the scenes, just making it work great for the, for this brand and being supportive of that. And that's what I, I think has just been really important for our success. Now, these are assets. It's a big change, right? It's not a box or bag that's meant to be disposed of. So I think the, the tracking and the, and the management part is, is really central to it. And at this point, we've put everything from standard classic barcodes to QR codes, to RFID tags, to whatever fits the client's requirements and is aligned to their inventory systems. But I think that speaks to an important point, which is you know, going to maybe sound consistent with our dialogue today, which is if the data system has to work too hard, you probably have a reuse model that's already suspect. So, you know, I think, and you don't just hear this in the secondary packaging world. I think you hear it across the board on refill and reuse is, is this sort of like, oh, well, we have all these assets, we have codes and all these things, so you're going to get data and that's valuable. But then there's usually this sort of awkward silence of like, well, how much value is that really allowing me? Because if the system isn't working to keep these things in reuse and in circulation by default, our experience is that putting tracking and putting data and putting codes is not somehow magically going to fix a poorly designed system. Yes, there is information that you'll learn. And yes, that information can have some value, but it's not going to take a 75% return rate program and make it a 96% return rate program. It just has never happened. That gap is too big. So 
the data part is needed. You need to validate. You need to understand how your packaging is staying in circulation, see where there's holes and areas for improvement, but it's not going to fix a poorly designed program. I like the idea of choosing your data and stay with it and make it lean, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I just got back from the Happy Returns warehouse in California, one of our you know biggest clients. They use it for shipping between retail locations and stores. And I learned they don't even they don't even manage the data anymore because they learn they don't need to. The boxes stay in circulation so well and for so long that they don't actively track the use cycles because that's time and effort that is not proving to give them useful information. They just stay in circulation because the system was built the right way from the start. And that is success, right? Like if they had to be spending a lot of energy tracking down where are my reusables, boy, you better be wondering if you've done this right. You know, you can't be spending a lot of time tracking down your reusables and wondering. You have to just have them stay in circulation because you did it right in the start. And the data will just confirm and support that. You know, it can be a refillable shampoo bottle or a shipping box. It's the same thing. If you are having to stretch so hard to make it viable, then you probably need to think about your core design elements that at the start. You're not going to come in at the end and fix it that way. Okay, yeah. I hear you. And we in the podcast, we already had several guests about reusable stuff and some of them even done use tech, just a lot of collaboration uh, to make it happen. And it works. So it's great. Now, I, I told you at the beginning that I was curious about a specific bag and it's called the chrysalises. No, chrysalises? Yeah, bags. It's kind of for the the metaphor of the butterfly, right? And about the reuse rate, I found that this chrysalis bags is very interesting because on this one, you basically trust the end consumer to keep the bag in circulation for their own utilization. It is kind of the opposite approach. I will say that we can hear sometimes like, make reusable ugly <laughs> to ease the give back system. And, and actually, I, I was wondering, okay, how did you come to this model for this specific packaging? And maybe you can a little bit describe it on the go. Because you already mentioned that actually people are probably not giving back so much and so on. So with this kind of model, do you wish that the end client will play a bigger role in returning bags to clients or like a bigger role to not forget them at home and, and really reuse them? And so, yeah, what this bag shows in terms of utilization that you had to go to this kind of model that it's completely different than the other ones? Yeah, the chrysalis bags are sort of fun and fluffy. I mean, they're not a really a serious answer to the packaging waste challenge we have, and we don't try and pretend otherwise. It is, you know, the first thing we tell brands is, first of all, it's not going to be cheaper. This is a brand ex extension. Like you're doing it as a branding exercise, not to, to be cost competitive with single use packaging. And not only that, you're never going to do this with all your shipping and you probably shouldn't. Because once someone gets one of these bags, they're not going to want a second one. And it's definitely not an environmentally sort of superior choice in the abstract because it's a, yeah, I mean, are you really going to send that to a customer and have them use it 100 or 200 times instead of single use bags to make it justifiable? The answer is almost certainly no. 
But the flip side of that is brands keep sending people reusable bags inside shipping bags, like as a gift of purchase. They're like, well, that's dumb. Why are you sending two bags? Just send one bag. We'll make it one bag for you. So you get your shipping bag and your reusable bag. They can walk around with your logo on their arm. You know, it's fun. It is not our main focus as a company. We're not out there pushing retailers to, that this is somehow the answer to our packaging waste problem because it clearly isn't. But, you know, you're going to that retailer to buy a product. Do you need that to survive? Almost certainly not, right? We are consumers. We consume every day. We give ourselves some space to have fun and to create products that can spark joy and not just be about utility or the environment exclusively. And those bags kind of accomplish it. So it ships as a shipping bag, like one of our reusable bags, and then you turn it inside out and it becomes that kind of fun keepsake. We even did this project with Gore-Tex where we've been using uh, fabric that they were shredding and landfilling because it was failing color match quality control issues where we're diverting that and making the bag. So, you know, we're all looking for ways to kind of create interesting alternative approaches to these things, but it is just going to be for fun and it can be, you know, we can also have fun sometimes. I think. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. And you just mentioned about a little bit of what they are made from. And so we haven't spoke about material yet. So From your experience, and I know that this subject is close to your heart, what are the most important things to consider when disrupting cardboard boxes or polymers? Because there is a number on your website, and I felt that it was interesting. Visually, you said that in the United States alone, it is enough packaging to pave a mile-wide cardboard road from New York City to Los Angeles and back three times a year. I just like these allegories. And you already mentioned cardboard, but of course there is other materials. And okay, it seems that Returnity packaging considers different factors in terms of impact along your value chain. And material is definitely one of them. So can you explain a little bit how you choose your material? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say our packaging, we generally are designing it with a guarantee of 20 use cycle. So 20 times out, 20 times back, 40 uses in essence. Practice it'll last longer. There's nothing magic about that number. It's what we've learned we can guarantee and stand behind after tens of millions of uses in that style of design and manufacturing in the settings where it's applied. So But there's plenty of other ways that you can think of designing a reasonable that's only meant to last five cycles and maybe is made out of different materials. And we're working on that stuff now too. But today, when you look at our customers and what they're using, we're making boxes and bags out of plastic because plastic works really well in that setting. It's light, it's durable, it's, it's low cost. And that's been really successful for us. So whether it's a PET fabric or nylon, plastic corrugate, woven polypropylene, you know, the plastic fabrics that are made in enormous quantities and so are really low cost and really efficient manufacturing solutions. They've worked really well for how we design our packaging. You know, I think we all desire to move away from plastic as much as we can, but what we've learned is that we can create net change that's positive if we're very honest about how the plastic is used and what it's replacing and how we validate that the actual, you know, that difference between how many times it can be used and how many times it is used. So 
if you're making it out of plastic and you're using it 20 to 30 shipping cycles, the life cycle assessments have been really clear. You're, you're creating really strong net positive, even if you're comparing it to a cardboard box, which is made out of paper and in theory is highly recyclable. Theory, again, is really important word there because what we know is that in the U.S. and in other markets, cardboard isn't recycled all the time. In fact, it's recycled a lot less than people think it is. And so the ability to have something recycled and the actual execution of recycling is a really important distinction. And that same thing is, I think, in play here when we look at how we design our packaging. We'd rather not use plastic if we didn't have to, but by using plastic in the way we are and deploying it in the use models that we are, we're able to really create positive change while we're always seeking out alternatives from a material and design standpoint. And, and one last note on that, it's really tricky to think about natural fibers or new technologies in this setting because we're replacing really low cost items. So, you know, there's a lot that's happening in the fashion space of people designing clothing and, and other garment and other items out of these new, you know, whether it's leather made out of mushrooms or other new tech that's coming on board, which we love, but there's more space to absorb the cost premium there of these new lower volume materials and shipping and delivery packaging. It just has to be cheap, 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 cheap. So it's really hard for us to be cost competitive and help new tech scale up. It's a constant tension that we're struggling with. So we always have an eye on the future. We want to be a part of pushing towards that, but we have to be really grounded today as well. And that's a tension that's sort of central to how we think about it. Okay, thank you for sharing. And I really hear the challenge and I really enjoy the fact that you are just transparent and share about your step-by-step -step story. It's really valuable for us. And because you mentioned recycling, it's also because there is like the reuse cycles, but of course, at the end, end of life of your packaging, you wish that it will be properly recycled. So I was wondering who is responsible for the end of life of what you put in the market in the systems you are building? Yeah, so this is a, a complicated subject in this space, which is no reason to shy away from it, but we have to acknowledge the complications. So on the, the positive is that when reuse systems are done right, the packaging is being returned to the retailer at a very high level and they get to make the choice of when it needs to be recycled or disposed of. So it's being done by one group rather than hoping that end consumers know what they are being asked to do and have the ability to do it in their communities because it's not consistent right across towns and, and communities across the country or, or, or anywhere in the globe. So you may live in a city where that mailer bag is recyclable and your neighbor may be in the next town where it's not, makes it very difficult. But in reuse systems, the retailer should be able to make that choice and to have all of the packaging be in bulk, which makes it much easier for the recycler, right? In theory, it's a single stream in the sense that it's all one item coming down at the same time, which is a big advantage. Now, the disadvantage is that designing packaging for long life in a reuse setting is often at odds with making it very easily recycled because you might be integrating multiple materials, right? In our context, that's the shipping label pocket is a different material than the bag itself. There might be a zipper, which is used for you know sealing and tamper security. 
So now you have a demanufacturing step, which is expensive. And the materials are probably not going to be worth that much in the recycling market. So now you're adding a lot of cost. So the short answer is that the end of life part of it is imperfect today. There are more vendors built bringing more technology to the market for recycling plastic fabrics like nylon and PET and woven poly, and that's a positive. The economics of recycling are, are complicated to be sure. And the realistic use cases for all those materials are fairly narrow. It's getting better. But our argument, you know, which is consistent with this dialogue, I, I think is that, again, if you're relying on the recycling of the materials to, to push it over the finish line to be a net positive program, you've already failed. Like the program has to stand on its own because you're displacing so much single use. The recycling should be the icing on the cake. And we're definitely helping clients put that icing on, but it's always got to be the icing. It can't be the cake itself. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Maybe because of what you said, how much partnership is a key factor in this subject? And then how would you wish structural changes and regulation to facilitate feasibility and recyclability of the end of life of this kind of packaging? Is it like about laws, about more local partnerships or about maybe because you mentioned the zippers and someone who just enjoy to dismantle packaging or whatever is like so how do you envision in the future the best partnership and structural change involved in the amelioration of this system Well, we're already seeing regulations uh, go into effect that are sometimes getting ahead of where companies and consumers are ready to live uh, in the sense that like in New Jersey, they banned single-use bags for grocery delivery. So all the retailers moved to doing grocery delivery and reusables as was mandated, and, but they didn't have an infrastructure or process for collecting those bags back up. So now consumers are sort of drowning in reusable bags, which is not creating a net positive. And so the state is figuring out how to stage things in more slowly and incentivize uh, retailers to have infrastructure and so forth. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. Governments putting in place more extended product responsibility laws, which will push retailers to test and expand solutions for reuse, consumers becoming more aware infrastructure developing. It's not going to be uh, one day we're linear and the next day we're circular kind of thing, or one day it's all single use and grocery, the next it's reasonable, and then next comes, you know, uh, furniture delivery or something else. It's going to be a lot of fits and starts and, and challenges. But I think the regulations are serving to accelerate the trends that were already there and put more rigid timelines against the changes that retailers and consumers alike have been asking for. And it's not like, you know, I would say in general, the retailers are, are leading in a lot of ways here, even if the progress feels slow. They've been a lot of declarations by CEOs around packaging specifically You know, no more single use or disposable packaging by 2025 or later. Those have been hard dates to, I think, line action up against in a realistic way. But it reflects that it's, you know, I think that everybody acknowledges that the way we're packaging, delivering products today is not sustainable. It's not just, it, it's not that it's not environmentally sustainable. It's not economically sustainable either. It's just, it's accelerated so fast and in such a complicated way that everybody appreciates it's got to change. I think that energy, that awareness, and ultimately all the innovation, it's going to bring us somewhere a lot better. Just it might be messy along the way. 
okay <laughs> that's a lot of things to take into account and a lot of things to see in the future here and we are coming to the end of the interview and you might know that i always ask each guest what burning question they would like to address to a next guest and I have chosen for you the question of Rosemary Cooper from Share, Reuse, Repair Initiative in episode 19. She would like to know if there is any innovation energy around in Canada, <laughs> she was mentioning, addressing the excess packaging linked to all our product delivery. And <laughs> of course, you understand why I have chosen you to ask this question. And so she was mentioned anything from Amazon to Etsy, and she knows there are solutions in Europe, and now I'm interviewing you, and you are based in the US, but she would like to know if we will see reduced energy around packaging waste linked to all our online delivery and mail systems here in Canada. And maybe it's a question a little bit tricky because I'm not sure that you are planning to expand into our country, but I wanted to have your expertise on this. Oh, maybe our country is <laughs> on your future scope. So would you consider to tackle more the energy questions as well because of her question? How I have understood your business model is like, would you agree if I say that your first fight is about tackling the waste and huge recycling amount problem and more than shorten the miles of product, which is doing like <laughs> with shipments, of course. And and yeah, so th there is several questions in her question, but I had to choose you <laughs> to answer it <laughs> because it's about no, delivery expansion and, and yeah, a lot of subjects behind that. Well, I think that Canada is developing in the same way that the U.S. and some European markets have for us. So the first wave of customers is usually rental businesses, which are the easiest to switch to reuse. And so we're already active, for example, with Trade, which is in Western Canada. So out of your area of the country, they use our bags and boxes for how they um, are sending their products out to their customers. So that's been a really great customer to have for us. So rental is sort of usually the first wave. The second is, as I said, is a lot of the more hidden parts of the operations. So how products are moving between stores and retailers. And that's uh, an area that we're doing a lot of work on behind the scenes. So as a consumer, you might not notice it, but it's replacing a lot of cardboard. And then the more high frequency, high engagement programs. Grocery works in part because it turns out people eat all the time and they're buying groceries every week. And so they're just interacting with that retailer at a very high rate, which is a big part of why groceries become a growth area for us is that it creates a platform for the kind of engagement and that works for reuse more than just sort of the, you know, very occasional e-commerce purchase you might do from a retailer. So I think you'll see it staged in that way as sort of a blocks kind of approach. You take the most circular parts, you start to layer on top. And I think it's consumer awareness and infrastructure keep coming along and, and it's accelerated. I mean, that's, you know, as pessimistic as I am about some of these models, we must also acknowledge that thankfully consumers are waking up to this and retailers are waking up to it and governments are waking up to it. And that change will continue to accelerate in our view. And this will become viable in more and more parts of the market over the coming years. But you'll see it there first and start with companies like Tradle. They're great. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah. And and they are great. <laughs> I, I know them. Uh, it's coming more and more for sure. I am in the center of this industry as well. So I see it. And at the same time, I also see a lot of people like you who make it easy and who knows a lot how it works behind. And so it's really great to see that this change is supported by people who really believe in strong values, but also target scaling to touch more people. So that's really, really interesting to hear and see. Before the last question, do you have anything you would like to add that we haven't spoke about? No, I mean, I think you've really questioned, you've gotten to the core of so many of the considerations and letting me go on and on about systems. It's always something a straight line to my heart. So no, you've asked great questions. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great. So for those who want to go deeper into secondary or shipping and delivery packaging and or design uh, about how it can work or like circularity, sustainability in general, what book, article or video has inspired you that you would like to share? Ooh, put me on the spot. Um, that's a great question. I think what I, I'm, I'm going to say the place that I always, I look at the supply chain industry as actually where I'm always inspired by and learn from because it's where all the nuts and bolts stuff happens. And a lot of the sort of sustainability and green aspirational stuff is cast to the side. I think if we're going to build from a foundation of where so much of the world works, like that's where I would go. So like the supply chain websites and new sites, I think are really important for anybody who cares about circularity. Okay, great. And now I would like you to address a burning question to a next guest related to packaging, something that you would like to have an answer or you are curious about, and I will choose to whom your question might fit best. Um, I, I appreciate that. I think my question would be how to balance, there's so much passion and energy around refill as a uh, alternative to disposal, how to ensure that the refillable packaging is reused enough to make that a good choice for the environment because you can sell it. If, it, if the customer makes the purchase decision upfront, it often is benefiting the retailer, but if they're not refilling it over time, it might not be benefiting the planet. So how are we going to get smarter about that challenge as we switch towards a refill model, particularly for product packaging. Okay. Thank you. Good question. A little bit challenging. <laughs> it is challenging, but it's good. But I think the success there is going to have so much impact. So it's, it's exciting to see all this energy on it, but I, I, that's the thing I struggle to figure out how, how are we going to get there? It's not something I work on directly, so I'm excited to learn. Great. And how can the audience find out more about you? about eternity and getting that? Well, we love people to get in touch. As you can tell, talking about packaging is something that really excites us. And we can always be reached through our website is usually the best place, just returnity.co. And we hope people will get in touch. Great. So thank you so much for this great conversation. I think we indeed <laughs> talk about a lot of details and also the wider system around. It's really, really interesting. So thank you for sharing. And maybe I will see you around in Vancouver and let's stay in touch for what's new. That would be great. Yes. Thank you for having me. Really been fun. Appreciate it. Thank you.
I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if it's the case, be sure to subscribe where you get your podcasts and leave us a five stars review to help for its visibility. You also probably have at least two or three friends or colleagues to share this episode with. Of course, feel free to get in touch by the lookforloops.com website or drop me a line on Colleen Regu LinkedIn profile. Last but not least, be sure to check the show notes with the links and resources. Until next time.